Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The mercy of Christ gives us eternal life. Not only for after death, but especially for here and now. Jesus has given us life to live as new creations every day. We can build a better world through Christ's saving grace. When my wife Marcia was in elementary school, about 10 years old, her uncle S.E. and her aunt Betty and their two children were heading up from Bay City to Houston. They were on a backcountry road when a drunk driver going the other way swerved into their lane and hit them head on. Her uncle S.C. had his leg badly broken. The two children in the back actually escaped with just some cuts and bruises, but the person who took the brunt of the accident was Aunt Betty. He really had hit the impact there. They thought that she was going to die there at the scene. Now, this was 58 years ago. They didn't have Met a flight back then for the helicopter to come in and grab somebody and fly them out. 
No, you had to wait for the ambulance to come from Houston and then to take you all the way back. And when the ambulance came, I mean, they had to try to stabilize Aunt Betty. She was in such bad condition. She had been so severely injured. They managed to resuscitate her, and then they got her into the ambulance, and they took off for Houston. And then along the way, she coded, and they stopped the ambulance, and they resuscitated her again. And then they headed on down the road towards Houston again. And again, her heart stopped, and they had to pull over to the side of the road, and they resuscitated her again. Remember, this is 58 years ago. Things were different than how they happen now. And they did it a third time, and finally they got her to the hospital. When they got her to the hospital, they rushed her into surgery, and there the doctors worked on her for quite some time. Finally, the doctor came out to talk to SC, and he said, we think that we have stabilized her. She had had massive damage to her organs and uh, internal bleeding. Her back is broken. Every bone in her face is broken, some shattered. We will be able to rebuild her face, but she will look different. And, you know, that's one of the things that Marcia remembered was that her aunt was such a pretty lady. And when she would see her the next time, she said she was still a pretty lady, but she looked different. They literally had to just put her back together. It was so severe. It turned out that she would be in the hospital for five months. Five months. But she would make it. It turned out that um, she had grown up in a Navy family. Her father was an admiral. And she understood discipline and regiment and being tough. And she was determined to do what she could to get back to life. The surgeon came in and talked to her and said, you need to understand you have a broken back. There's a good chance that you will never walk again. You will never have any more children. And you're going to have difficulty and complications for the rest of your life. But Aunt Betty was such a neat lady, a lady of great faith. She was a lady who loved to have fun. She was upbeat. She was optimistic. And as I said, she'd come from tough background, tough tough stock. And so after five months, she went home. And again, it was so different from today. She created her own rehabilitation program. And she went to work for the next two years on her rehabilitation. And it was two years later that she came back to see the surgeon. And she walked into his office. She walked into his office. And when she got into his office, then she bent over and touched her toes. And she said, I'd like to see you do that, please. <laughs> of which the doctor laughed, and of course he could not do. <laughs> she went on to have two more children. She would live another 35 years. And as I said, she was such a lady of faith and fun, and she lived a very full and meaningful life for the next 35 years. Passed away in 1999. But she had a good life. She was very close to Marcia's sister, Janice. Janice is six years younger than Marcia. Um, she went to medical school and became a radiation oncologist. And she was very close to Aunt Betty. They were kind of the same cutout and spirit-loving animals in the outdoors and just being a little rougher in the things that they would do. They, they were the same spirit. And whenever Betty would have a problem uh, with her physical issues, then 
Janice could help her to talk about it and see what they needed to do. But as later on, Betty began to have some more problems and they seemed to be more severe. And so Janice helped her get her some tests and sure enough, when the test came back, it determined that Aunt Betty had ALS. Not the diagnosis that you want. It was then that Aunt Betty sat down with that diagnosis and, and said to Janice, you need to understand, I'm not afraid to die. And she explained, I, I want to tell you a story. You see, the truth of the matter is, Aunt Betty had had a near-death experience, an NDE. But 50-plus years ago, that wasn't something you talked about. If you talked about having some sort of an experience, an out-of-body experience, you were considered crazy. People didn't want you to talk about it. It made them uncomfortable. But she and Janice were close, and she knew she could be honest and bare her soul. And so she said, I, I want to tell you what happened to me at the accident. She said, all those years ago, when the accident happened, I felt myself being out of my body, looking back on the situation. And I felt myself being drawn to the light, this beautiful light. It was like going through a tunnel. And it was all so beautiful and warm, and you just felt love. And I found myself climbing a ladder, like a ladder on a water tower. And it was difficult to climb this ladder. And I climbed and climbed. And when I got to the top, there was a wall that I couldn't get over, but I could see over. And what I saw was something so beautiful. And there was such joy and there was such love. And I have a hard time putting into words exactly what I saw and was experiencing, but it was so wonderful and I wanted to go to this party. And then I was pulled back. And then slowly I began to climb the ladder again. And I got to the top and I looked over the wall and I saw this beautiful party. And then I was pulled back. And then it was a third time and she was pulled back and she climbed a fourth time. And she said that fourth time that I got to the top and I looked over the wall, I heard a voice that said, you have to go back. And suddenly she found herself there in the hospital. People were working on her. She was in incredible pain. And she was angry. Angry. What she was angry was about was they hadn't let her go to the party. And so she began to tell them in language that her father would have used with his sailors exactly how she felt about not getting to go to the party. She was in pain and she was angry. They took her to surgery and as I said, she came out and went through her own rehabilitation and would live another 35 years and having the children and living a very meaningful life. But now that she knew she would have her end coming, she said, Janice, I'm not afraid to die. They stayed very close and Janice was always going to see Aunt Betty and 
Finally, they knew that the time was getting very close, and Janice was there with her. And she was sitting in her bedroom, and, and Aunt Betty had her eyes closed, and Janice was holding her hand. And she felt the breathing was becoming more shallow, and she said, Aunt Betty, are you going to the party? And she opened her eyes, and she smiled, and she nodded. And then she closed her eyes, and the party began. Aunt Betty had what we call a near-death experience, an NDE. That's a, a word, a concept that was not around back then. I was in seminary back in 1975, and I'll never forget in 1975 a book came out entitled Life After Life. It was by Raymond L. Moody. And it was Raymond L. Moody who had ultimately coined this phrase, near-death experience, NDE. You see, he was a psychiatrist, and by the mid-1970s, our technology was certainly improving. Our ability to shock people's heart and to get it back into going, or injections of adrenaline into the heart, or different kind of things we were doing. And more and more people through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s begin having these near-death experiences, an experience where you've been declared clinically dead and then you've been resuscitated. And what, as a psychiatrist, he found happening was people were coming to him confused, frightened, upset about all these things that they felt they had seen and it happened and they couldn't talk about with anybody because they would be told, you're crazy, people didn't want to hear it. And so they came to him to talk about the feelings they were having and he just started listening. He didn't try to say, oh yes, that's true or that's not true or you're crazy. He just listened and they needed to talk. And he began writing down all the things that they were telling him and he found fascinating. He was hearing some of the same things over and over again from different strangers. So then he started being proactive and going to different doctors saying, do you have anybody in your practice where they've had a, an experience where they were declared clinically dead and then resuscitated? Yes, yes. I'd like to reach out to them and ask if there's anything they'd love to talk about. And he found there was a lot of people who wanted to talk about something that had happened to them. Again, all these people don't know one another. They don't know him. He just listens. And after interviewing hundreds of people, he began to notice there were certain things that were showing up again and again. Not the same in every single one, but some things seemed to be more common than others. And the things that showed up over and over again was people moved towards the light. Quite often they felt they were in a tunnel. They said they felt incredible love. There was great beauty. For many, they saw loved ones, people that they loved, who were already dead. Well, he started taking all these things that they seemed to be hearing more than once and writing them down, put them all together in this book and called it Life After Life. And he says right up front, this does not prove anything. But it should ask, get us to ask a bunch of questions. And it really did get a large conversation stirred and going in all the different seminaries and in churches across the country. People wanted to start talking about this and thinking more about it. And now today, 
45 years later or so, you go to the bookstore in Barnes and Noble and ask about NDEs and you have book after book after book about near-death experiences and movies have been made and everybody wants to talk about their NDE. Very different from so many years ago. But one of the things that Raymond L. Moody discovered was regardless of what you think about what they experienced, regardless if you think that was fantasy or you don't like it or you do like it, regardless of what you think happened to them, the one thing you can't deny is the people it happened to were changed. The people who had had that experience tended to come back and be different. So that was an empirical thing we could easily see. Those who had the experience are now different from what they were before the experience. So if you have an NDE and it's a few minutes or it's a few hours or however long and it's going to wind up changing you, can you imagine how long much you'd be changed if your near-death experience lasted four days? That's where our story starts today with Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days when Jesus would come. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to celebrate the Passover. Just like right now, we're moving towards the time of the Passover, and then we will call Easter. Well, there was the time he was preparing to go to Passover there in Jerusalem, making this journey. And he was going to go stay with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. They lived in Bethany right outside of, of Jerusalem, about two miles away. It made a perfect place to go and stay. You could stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, then go into Jerusalem during the day. You could come back at night, go in during the day, come back at night. They'd been friends for a long time. But as he's moving towards Bethany, he receives word, your friend Lazarus is ill. Now they had seen Jesus heal the sick, help the blind to see, the lame to walk. They sent word, Lazarus is ill. But Jesus did not hurry to Bethany. He died. And then Jesus came. And when he drew near, it was Martha who first went out to see him. And Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, your brother will live again. And she said, I know, I know, again, he will be raised in the last resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, when you read that statement in the book of John, you need to understand that that's a theological statement. It tells us how the early church looked at Jesus. Jesus may have said something like that, but there was no person sitting there to write everything down. Nothing would be written down until 30 years later. No, this is a good theological statement that the early church understood about Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And there's two things there. The resurrection, the promise of eternal life, and the life that's life now. I'm the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Promise of eternal life. And whoever lives and believes in me, 
go back and just drop off believe. Whoever lives in me, that is about right now, you shall not die. You'll be alive right now. It really is about the gift of God's love, about God's grace, that saves us to life eternal and life now. And that's why this morning I want to start a sermon series entitled Saving Grace. We're going to look at God's amazing grace, the saving grace, that gives us life now and life eternal. That's what I want us to look at for these next six weeks. We're going to look at different people who will experience God's saving grace just as we can and help us to live now and eternally as we prepare ourselves to come to Easter. Now, whenever you're reading John, you need to understand John is going to give you things that sometimes are very um, practical at that moment, and other times everything he says has a secondary symbolic meaning. So we start the story again. And he says, take me to the tomb. And they take him to the tomb. And Jesus now says, remove the stone. And it's Martha says, our brother's been dead for four days. If we remove the tomb, it's going to smell. Now that is not a theological statement. That's just very practical, and that's just telling you this is grounded in some sort of a historical moment. If we remove the stone, it's going to stink. It's been dead for four days. Remove the stone. And so they do, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Now that is also the practical Come forth, that's what you would say. But it's also theological. Out of the cave, out of the tomb, out of death, come forth. The theology or the promise that you and I come forth from the grave to the promise of a new life, to be born again, come forth. As we start looking at this, I believe there's interesting to see how did Lazarus live in such a way that things would be different? If you've experienced an NDE, how would you come back and now live differently? If that's what happened to people and Lazarus had one for four days, how is he going to wind up being different? That's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to delve into the scripture and there's really just two things that I want us to see. First of all, Jesus would say, Lazarus, come forth. It is a theological, practical, but theological statement. There is this resurrection. There is going to be this new life. Now, how does Lazarus deal with this coming back to life? I think for sure that Lazarus now has, death is no longer an intellectual concept, but it's an existential reality. He knows he's going to die again. Just because he got raised from the dead, it doesn't mean he's going to live forever. You got raised from the dead, you're now going to die again. Death is a part of life. And so often you and I don't want to deal with that. We don't want to talk about death. It's so morbid, it makes us sad it, to think about someone you love who's going to die or that I'm going to die. To think about one's own death or the person you love who may die, we don't like talking about that. 
And yet it's so important to be able to embrace that understanding that it'll make you free to be able to live. I, I, I love Maury Schwartz in the book Tuesday with Maury. I must have read it more than 20 years ago. But he had a line in there that I've never forgotten. I think about it every so often because he said, everybody is going to die, but nobody believes it. Because if we did, we would probably live different. Everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. We probably would live different. No, we're busy trying to deny the fact that we're ever going to die. I love the old legend from centuries ago. The idea of a, of a servant who came to a very wealthy king. And, and the king said to him, go into the marketplace and go buy food. I want to give a banquet for my friends. And so the servant goes into the marketplace to go buy food for the banquet. And while he is there buying things and shopping, he looks up and he looks right in to the face of the angel of death. Well, he is terrified. He runs back home to the castle as quick as he can and goes to his master and said, I ran into the angel of death there in the market and he threatened me. I've got to run. Can I use your horse? I need to ride. I must get away somewhere, maybe to the city of Samara. And the king said, absolutely. Take my horse. Ride. Go to Samara. Well, after the servant rides away, he goes back down to the marketplace and there he finds the angel of death. And he says to the angel of death, why did you threaten my servant? And the angel of death said, I didn't threaten your servant. I was just so stunned to see him here. I have an appointment to meet him tonight in Samara. <laughs> we run from death, but we don't escape. It's a part of life. For us all. And I love visiting with my son Paul, who, as you know, is a vascular surgeon, and he has so many different interesting cases and the things they do, and at times he's worked on cardiothoracic operations and things with the heart, and sometimes they are very successful and life is extended, and other times people die. And it's always hard to be able to accept that, but I always remind him and say, son, when you're doing that surgery, and it is successful, just remember, you didn't save somebody's life. You just extended it. They're still going to die. Whether it's now in the operation or sometime in the future, we're still all going to die. What Raymond Moody discovered was people who had had a NDE we're no longer afraid of death. If it had been a significant near-death experience, what they found was people weren't afraid of dying because now they understood it to be a part truly of life. It's something we're all going to do. And they weren't afraid to die. But the other thing was they all understood that this is the moment that you're given and to live fully in the moment. It's all that we have. So what do I think happened to Lazarus? I think that after Jesus had raised him from the dead, I believe Lazarus lived fully in the moment without a fear of dying. 
for he knew he would one day do it again. As we all will. And so secondly, Jesus said, unbind him and set him free. Now again, that's a very practical statement. It's also a theological statement. A person was wrapped in bandages, and that's how they were buried, a napkin over their face. And if you're coming out of the tomb, well, somebody needs unbind him and let him go. But the early church heard that with a secondary message, because for so many people we had been bound by so many things of which we were afraid. They'd been bound by traditions. They'd been bound by law. They had been bound by so many um, restrictions. They had been bound by so much that kept them from being the person God had created them to be. How many things bind you? Keep you from trying what you want to try. Keep you from living the way that you want to live. Unbind him and let him go. There was a deeper message to the church not just about taking off the bandages from someone who had died. It was a theological statement to people that said, unbind them, let them go. That it is Christ who is calling you out because of His grace, this saving grace that calls you to life. You do not have to be bound by the past or your guilt or any of these other things. You were called forth, come forth to life. Again, one of the things that Raymond Moody discovered as he visited with all these people was when they came back, their priorities, if you will, had kind of changed. What are the things that were important? Well, it wasn't success. It wasn't acceptance of other people. Um, it wasn't wealth. It wasn't even health. When they came back, what mattered was learning how to love. It's amazing. How often what we learn from people who've had NDEs is they have a passion for learning how to love. They say that's the reason you and I are here. The reason we were put here is to learn how to love. And that is not an easy thing. We struggle with that. When we're honest about it, we struggle with how do you love others. And they said that's why we're all here to learn how to love God and to love one another. And so to come back, it really is about living in this moment and not being afraid of death because we know that one day we will die. We're committed to seizing this moment and learning how to love. That changes the way you go about living. Come forth, unbind him and let him go. I wanted to give you an update on a story that I told you about three years ago, back in 2019. Some things that have taken place and kind of an update on what had happened. I don't know if you remember, I told you a story of a young lady named Amy Brockerstedt. Amy Brockerstedt. It turns out that if you go to the PGA website and you look at the videos they have there, their most viewed video is not about Tiger Woods, it's not about Roy McElroy. It's about Amy. When Amy, girl was, when Amy was 18 year old, she was there in high school. Amy has Down syndrome. She was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. 
And, and as a young person, she discovered she really had pretty good eye-hand coordination, which is usually a struggle for someone with Down syndrome. But she had a pretty good eye-hand coordination, and so she wanted to learn how to play golf, and her parents helped her to have some lessons. She started to play, and she was actually pretty good. Good enough that in the end she went to high school and she tried out for the school, high school golf team and she made the team. And as far as we know, Amy is the only person with Down syndrome to ever play in a state championship golf tournament. There that she did in Arizona. Well, she is this neat young lady who has the most beautiful smile and she is really all about loving people. Enjoying life, loving people. She loves being a part of playing golf. It's all about the teammates and the camaraderie. Well, it turned out that that year at the Phoenix Open, which was in January of 2019, they had a Tuesday, which was before the tournament, starts on a Thursday, and they were going to have a special Olympics day, a day in which they invited children like Amy to come and to meet the golfers, just to, to meet other people who were their heroes. And, of course, Amy was there. And the person she wanted to meet was Gary Woodland. Gary had won the Phoenix Open the year before. And Amy had watched and she had been so excited, she wanted to meet him. That was her hero. And so she was there at the tournament. And, and it was on that Tuesday and he had already been told that she was going to be coming, told a little bit about her. And so she came out and saw Gary and Gary introduced himself and he said, well, Amy, I hear you're a pretty good golfer. Yep. Well, I, I hear you really do love golf and really enjoy playing. Yep. Well, they got to talking and kind of laughing and just hitting it off. And on the spur of the moment, Gary came up with an idea and said, well, Amy, would you like to play a hole with Matt Cooker here and I? We're going to play this hole. Would you like to hit a few golf balls with us? It was the 16th hole there at the... Um, at the Phoenix Open. It's kind of a historic hole. It's, it's an iconic hole. and got all the stands around us. It's a par three, and it's just known for being a special place where things happen. And she goes, yes, yes, I would. So she goes back over to her father to let him put on her golf shoes and tie them, and she's going, Daddy, they love me here. They love me. They really do love me here. <laughs> yes, Amy, I think they do. And now Gary's over there thinking to himself, what did I just do? What did I just do? I have now asked this young girl, 18 years old, to come out here and to tee up and to play in front of all these people who are already gathered in the stands. I mean, the pressure that she is going to feel. And if you're a golfer, you know what happens when you're going to go tee up and people suddenly stand around you. You forget everything you know. And you immediately start to swing and you lift your head and you top the ball and it rolls 20 yards out in front of you, maybe. Or you hit it really hard and you slice it. It's gone into the woods forever. And he's thinking, what have I done to this young girl? Oh my, now he's suddenly regretting this impetus moment that he had. But Amy has her club and her ball and she comes walking out and she's saying to herself, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. She steps up and goes, I got this. And she hits it and hits it straight down the fairway, hits it so far, it actually goes into the sand trap right before the hole. It's at the par three. She hit it that far, almost all the way to the green. 
Well, Gary is stunned and he's so thrilled for her. And he's high-fiving her going, that was amazing, Amy. That was amazing. You're incredible. Thank you, thank you. She's waving to the crowd, you know. People are cheering and cheering. I mean, it was a great shot. I mean, to hit it that far straight down the fairway. They walk together down to the fairway and they're just talking now. And they, they get down to the, um, to the sand trap. And Gary says to Amy, would you like me to go in and get the ball out for you? I got this. Okay. She gets her wedge and she walks into the sand trap. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. She takes her stance and she blasts it out of the sand trap. You cannot even see the flag from down in the bottom of the sand trap. It comes up, it lands on the green and rolls up to within eight feet of the flag. Gary is in utter amazement and shock, as is everybody else, and they are all cheering now in the stands, cheering at everybody out there is giving her a high five, the other players, and she's coming up, and she's just having a great time, and they're all cheering for her. And Gary said, I'm sitting there looking at this eight-foot putt, and he said, I just start praying. Oh, God, please let her make this putt. Please let her make this putt. He said, I think I was praying harder than I've ever prayed before on a golf course. Help her, oh God. They're together, kind of slapping each other. And finally he says, think we ought to go do this? She said, I got this. They walk over to the ball. He looks at it and says, I think it's going to break a little to the left. I got this. Okay. He steps back. She walks up to get her stance and Again, the camera zoomed in on her and you can hear her saying, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. She strikes the ball firmly and it goes and it curves and it goes right dead center in the cup. She makes a par three on this iconic hole out of the sand trap. The stands are going wild and so is Gary. He's like, I cannot believe this. You know, Amy, you're so incredible. You are so wonderful. Wave to the crowd and she is just waving to everybody. That video, not only is number one video on the PGA Facebook page, on all social media, it's now been viewed more than 51 million times. It's just a feel-good moment. But the story goes on. About five months later, Gary Woodland is playing in the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in June of that year, 2019. And when it comes to the final day, he's in the lead. The pressure of being in the lead of a major golf tournament, final day. He'd never won before. And that day he found himself walking the links and walking down the fairway going, you got this. You got this. You got this. Coming up to the ball, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And he did. He won the U.S. Open. And in winning and receiving the trophy, he said, I just have to say, I owe a lot to Amy Bakerset. Her sense of confidence and enthusiasm, it affected me so much. The Today Show invites him to come and be on the Today Show the next morning, the new U.S. Open champion. He contacts the Today Show and says, I want you to fly Amy and her family up here as well. 
And so they fly Amy to New York with her parents. They don't really know what's going on. They come into the studio and don't realize they're now sitting there and everybody else is there, Al Roker and all the group, and they're kind of talking. It is actually now live and in walks Gary Woodland carrying the U.S. Open trophy. And Amy is so excited to see him and he comes over and he sits down beside her and he hands her the trophy and says, we did this together. You helped me so much. She continued to do well. She wound up getting a scholarship to play golf in college there at the um, Phoenix Valley um, Golf uh, College. She's the first person we know of, again, with Down syndrome to play on a scholarship in golf in college. And when she turned 21, just recently, they started a foundation called I Got It. I got this. And it's all about helping people with disabilities just be noticed and have the opportunity to be everything they can be. I got this. Her dad was being interviewed and he said, you know, it doesn't seem wherever Amy goes, the moment is too big for her. And her father said, the great thing about Amy is she lives in the present moment and she doesn't know to be afraid. To live in the present moment and not be afraid. That's what I believe happened to Lazarus. When you come forth from the tomb and you're no longer afraid of death, you love this moment. Unbind him and let him go. All those things that hold you back, don't be afraid. To live in the present moment and not be afraid. I think that's what happened for Lazarus. But I think that's also supposed to be the message for you and me today. For we hear Jesus say, come forth. Unbind them and let them go. For I am the resurrection and the life. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses.
Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.